Hi everyone, before we get started today, just a quick reminder to please go check out the Patreon page for A Christian Reads the Tao Te Ching. I currently have eight patrons and it's coming in at $46 a month, but of course I would love to increase that number, not just for myself, but to help fund my ministry in the Middle East. Um, Also for the first 10 patrons, I'm doing a special offer where you will get two free founding member stickers in the mail that will have the logo for the show as well as uh, a little uh, tagline that says that you're a founding member. So that's kind of a cool incentive. There are only two spots left for that, though. So if you want to, if you want those, go ahead and jump over to the Patreon and make a minimum donation of just $3 a month, and that will uh, get you not only access to our private Facebook group, but also um, those uh, stickers. One more thing, though. As I said last week and two weeks ago, I'm looking to add some new benefits to the Patreon. I'd like to give some more incentives for people who are willing to jump on board. Uh, and partner with me in the show. So if you have any ideas of something that you would like to see from a Patreon, if you have some ideas of benefits that would make you interested in contributing to the show, whether that is extra short episodes in the middle of the week or private chats with me or something else, um, please reach out to me, contact me on the page um, or via the Patreon. You can find the link for that in the show notes and let me know. And so anyway, I don't want to go on too long promoting that uh, because I don't want to take away from the show today. But uh, I just wanted to get that out there. Let's go ahead and listen to the episode now. There are many ways to approach learning a foreign language. Traditionally, classrooms have focused on learning the rules of grammar and basic vocabulary, along with reading and writing, before immersing students in hearing and speaking the language. Others have pushed for a more immersive approach, throwing themselves into the language and figuring it out as they go. And of course, there are a million variations in between these, all of them with their own pros and cons. But one thing that they all share in common is that learning a language takes an enormous amount of time and energy and focus. You will get out of it only what you're willing to put in, And it costs a lot of blood and sweat and tears to achieve any level of fluency in any language. Trust me, I've been fascinated by language and language learning methods since I was young. I've learned a little bit about almost any major world language, and I've studied Spanish, German, French, and Arabic at a serious level. And some of them are easier and some are more difficult, but all of them cost a lot of time and energy. They say that you really know a language when you start dreaming in it. Maybe that isn't literally true, although I've had some dreams in German and Spanish, but the idea is valid. The goal of language learning is to achieve effortlessness when it comes to using the target language. The word fluency doesn't actually have a lot of meaning since it is really based on context. For example, right now I'm learning Arabic, and I'm borderline fluent when it comes to working with my kids on the playground or talking about my teaching job, since that's where I have focused my learning. But if you throw me into a conversation about even the most simple matters of business, I'll be completely lost. But the one thing that fluency always includes is fluidity. Being able to speak and understand without putting in a lot of extra effort is the benchmark for fluency. And so why am I talking about this? Well, I think that learning a language might be a good metaphor for learning virtue. The Tao Te Ching says, A man of the highest virtue does not keep to virtue, and that is why he has virtue. 
A man of the lowest virtue never strays from virtue, and that is why he is without virtue. The former never acts, yet leaves nothing undone. The latter acts, but there are always things left undone. When you're learning a language, you are constantly putting effort in your studies, only to find that there are more things to be done, more things to be learned. And eventually, although it takes a very long time, depending on how hard you're working, but it takes a long time, but there comes a point where learning becomes more organic as you immerse yourself in the language and you find yourself starting to understand more and more and picking things up naturally. And so the relationship between effort and language learning may be parallel to the relationship between effort and virtue. And this question is an important one that comes up time and time again in the Tao Te Ching, that ancient book of Chinese wisdom and spirituality that didn't draw me away from a Christ-centered faith, but actually helped me hold on to it. Hi, my name is Corey Farr, and this is episode 26 of A Christian Reads the Tao Te Ching. If you haven't listened to before, in this series, I work through the Tao Te Ching from beginning to end and talk about all the ways in which it has impacted my life and my spirituality as a Jesus follower. Uh, so if you haven't listened to before, it's best to go back and listen to episode one, which gives sort of an intro to the series, explains what the Tao Te Ching is and how I'm going about this. Uh, you could also check out my blog where I write lots of articles about other things as well, but uh, there's a series there that follows this podcast and kind of gives the highlights of it. And the blog is at coreyfar.com, C-O-R-E-Y-F-A-R-R.com. Last week, we set ourselves up for this week by looking first at chapter 37 and then the first four lines of chapter 38. Today, we're going to look at the next eight lines of chapter 38, and we'll leave the final four for next week. But last week, we focused on te, or high virtue, how it flows forth naturally and effortlessly, just like language learning that I talked about in the beginning of the episode how it feels no need to put itself on display, and in some ways isn't even aware of itself as virtuous to begin with. How, by staying centered in the Tao, this high virtue cooperates with the world as it changes in its own natural rhythms. We saw that high virtue comes from staying centered in the Tao, because both the Tao and the Te, or virtue, are wu-wei. They act without acting from a place of spontaneity and effortlessness that is also efficient and effective. And finally, last week we talked about how cultivating a wu-wei attitude doesn't mean checking out from the problems of our world, but actually frees us up to engage them in the most healthy and effective way possible. This week we're going to expand on what Lao Tzu calls low virtue. One of the core themes of this chapter is the repeating contrasts that Lao Tzu uses to differentiate between varying levels of virtue, from the highest to the lowest, which is actually barely virtuous at all. We introduced this topic last week by seeing that in the first four lines, low virtue in general, in contrast to high virtue in general, feels both a need to acknowledge itself and a need to act. The next section of the chapter that we'll look at today gives us three specific kinds of low virtue. Benevolence, justice slash righteousness, depending on your translation, and etiquette or ritual. Although these words mostly sound positive to us at first, Lao Tzu is actually critiquing them, and each one of them represents a step down the ladder from the high virtue of Te, or a step away from the center of the Tao. 
And so now that I've given that short recap, let's go ahead and dive right into the chapter. I'm going to read my own translation slash paraphrase again this week to refresh your memory. Uh, This chapter is really long and complex, and it can be very vague. Uh, So I took a lot of time to read and compare different translations and commentaries and synthesize them into sort of my own um, compilation here or paraphrase here. And uh, so it includes a few different lines and, and wording taken from different places, but Personally, I'm really happy with it, and I think it really draws out the parallels uh, in this chapter. So go ahead and, and listen to that now, and then we'll, we'll uh, get into the meat of the chapter. Hai te, no te. That's what te is. That is to say, the highest virtue is never a display of virtue. That's what te is. Lo te doesn't lack te. That's what te is not. That is to say, the lowest te is always holding on to virtue. That's what te is not. Those highest in te live in wu-wei, acting without action, living effortlessly. Those lowest in te only get half of wu-wei. They act by taking action, always putting forth an effort. Those highest in benevolence take action and put forth an effort, but without an agenda, so they accomplish what can be accomplished. Those highest in righteousness also take action and put forth an effort, but with an agenda, so there is always more to be accomplished. Those highest in etiquette and ritual also take action and put forth an effort, And if people don't respond, they roll up their sleeves and force others to do things their way. Therefore, lose Tao and you've got Te. Lose Te and you've got benevolence. Lose benevolence and you've got righteousness. Lose righteousness and all you have is etiquette and ritual. Etiquette and ritual are a thin shell of loyalty and sincerity. They are the beginning of chaos. Knowledge and predictions are only flowery embellishments of the Tao. They are the beginning of ignorance. And so, the wise person lives in the thickness of reality, not the thin shell of etiquette and ritual or the flowers of knowledge and predictions. The wise person says yes to the former, and no to the latter. After hearing briefly about the contrast between high virtue and low virtue at the beginning of the chapter, we then get three paragraphs describing three different kinds of people with characteristics that, like I said, sound pretty good to our ears. We have the benevolent people, the righteous or just people, and the people of high etiquette or ritual. And so at first it's a bit cryptic, but if we look at lines 9 through 12, it becomes clear that Lao Tzu is actually critiquing these traits rather than praising them. Each one of them is a form of low virtue because they feel a need to take action, and in fact each one is lower than the one before it. The chapter says, Therefore, lose Tao and Te follows. Lose Te and benevolence follows. Lose benevolence and righteousness follows and lose righteousness and etiquette follows. I think the easiest way to do this section and make it a little bit less abstract is to highlight each one of these quickly and then share some personal stories from my own life 
that give a little bit of an example of each one. And before we get started, though, let me be clear on one thing. Even though these stories that I share will go in order from my life, and they'll show that there has been a long and slow trajectory of growth in my spirituality, I don't want to give the impression that I've left these lower levels behind. I can see elements of what Lao Tzu calls high virtue or high te in my life right now, but I also still find myself frequently falling into lower levels of thinking and acting. And so this isn't a black and white, this category or that category kind of thing. It's not like leveling up or getting a job promotion. If we stick to the center, we will find ourselves growing and progressing over time, but there are always elements of lower-level thinking that we carry with us. And so I don't want to make myself sound somehow more advanced than I really am. Uh, if you remember from two weeks ago, I talked about the spiral of spiritual growth, which is one of my favorite images. Uh, just like a spiral, our spirituality is both linear and cyclical. And so if you picture it in your head, we may come back around to the same issues and questions over and over again, but hopefully each time we come around to that same struggle or question, we're either going to a deeper level or reaching a higher plane, depending on which perspective you take on the spiral. It's also important to note before we get started that none of these categories, benevolence, righteousness, or etiquette, are necessarily always wrong or bad. Even though my stories are going to focus on some negative expressions of them, the problem is that they just aren't wu-wei, so they aren't ultimate virtue. In the first section of the chapter, low virtue was described as needing to take action in contrast to the wu-wei of high virtue. And so expanding on that, as I said, every one of these three categories, the first words to describe them are that they take action. And that's why I view them as subsets of the low virtue, instead of considering low virtue as some kind of category in between benevolence and high virtue, which is what some commentators do. Anyway, enough of the technicalities. Let's get down to business and move into the categories here. And so we're actually going to start with the final one, the one that's furthest from the Tao and the one that Lao Tzu actually has the most contempt for. This is called etiquette, or ritual, or piousness, or as Marshall Davis, a Christian translator, writes, religion. Etiquette and ritual are a, quote, thin shell of reality, and they're based on having a strong confidence in possessing the right way that things are to be done. But they are not a guarantee of character because they're only superficial actions. The people of etiquette and ritual can sound a lot like the Pharisees of the Bible, or at least the ones that Jesus was critiquing, because they hold scrupulously to the right way of doing things. And then when people don't respond, they do everything possible to force them into doing it the right way. They are what Jesus called whitewashed tombs. They're dead on the inside, but they look really nice on the outside because they do everything the right way. And so because of this, they're the most likely to be hypocritical. Now again, etiquette doesn't demand or imply that we are necessarily hypocritical, but in Latsu's scheme, if you lose the others and this is all that you have, that's most likely the case. So unlike the other categories, this chapter really has nothing good to say about etiquette and ritual. As I look back on my own life, I think of when I was 16 years old, before I had really turned to faith in Christ fully. I had been the perfect little Christian boy at my private school and at youth group, I was playing on three different worship teams, meaning that I was at practice or playing a set five days a week. I was also on the student leadership team for the youth group, and I was on student council at high school, and so on and so forth. 
But I started having some doubts and asking some very critical questions about my faith. And because I didn't feel any freedom to voice them because of the situation I was in, they, the faith started crumbling. It became cancerous, this doubt, and then it ate away at my faith until I was, as I like to call it, a closet atheist. I didn't believe any of it anymore, but I was still playing on the worship teams and participating in the prayer meetings and helping plan the youth events with the student leadership team. It was truly, as Lao Tzu says, a thin shell of reality. Now, I don't think that I had the same judgmental and forceful and aggressive element that Lao Tzu talks about here, the one where we try to force people into doing things our way, but I definitely wasn't very gracious or compassionate to the faith of those around me, at least on the inside, and I think that if I had felt the freedom to come out of that atheist closet, I probably would have been very vocal in my disbelief, and I think I would have tried to convince others that they were wrong too. The only thing that held me back from this was that announcing my atheism meant that I would lose nearly everything that I knew. My identity was tied up in all these religious events, and I had been at the same Christian school since I was in grade one. So it was, it was unthinkable to imagine the consequences of coming out of that closet. But fortunately, things changed very dramatically that same year. I don't have time to share the whole story here, but the main point is that when I hit the rock bottom of atheism, which was making me very depressed, I cried out this prayer one night to a God that I said I didn't believe in him, but I said, God, if there is a God, I don't believe in you, but I prayed to him anyway, asking for something. And then the very next day, I received this really incredible confirmation um, through a sermon that God had heard my prayer and was speaking really very directly to my situation. And so there were a lot of moving pieces here, but in that moment, things changed forever. And despite all of the struggles and questions that I've had since then, I've never been able to shake the fact that I was genuinely saved by Jesus, which is a word that I don't use lightly. And so anyway, I don't want to just make this whole episode a testimony time, but I think that's an illustration of what it means to live out of etiquette and ritual. And moving forward, the next category is those who have righteousness or justice. These words probably have positive connotations for most of us, although for others they might bring up unwanted memories of toxic people and behaviors or toxic religious past. But Lao Tzu isn't using them in a Christian sense, and he definitely is not praising them. Like the other three categories, righteous people feel a need to take action, but they also do so with an agenda. And since they have an agenda, that means that their job is never truly done because they feel that there's always more to accomplish. We might consider this as sort of a subset of benevolence, which is going to be our third and final category. Like benevolence, as we'll see, righteousness acts with a perceived good in mind, but unlike benevolence, it can often lose sight of the humanity of others. It is pursuing the right thing, and many times even for the right reasons, but without the element of compassion and empathy that makes benevolence and high virtue what they are. And so this makes me think of another story, also from when I was 16 years old. Uh, It was actually from the same year as the one that I just told, and it's really hard to believe that that's the case. But like I said, after encountering and turning to Jesus, my life changed dramatically and very quickly. I became vocal and outspoken about my faith. I'm not saying that I had no compassion or empathy, because again, the lines aren't always so clear cut. But I can confidently say that generally I operated more out of what Lao Tzu calls justice than benevolence. 
I was provocative and aggressive in my rhetoric, uh, both in person and on social media, because I had decided that the church wasn't living up to what I thought it should look like, I started calling it out, very hardcore. I had this burning fire within me to see things done the right way, and it didn't matter who got burned in the process. If I had to steamroll people or slander the way that things were being done, or even disrespect those who had raised me in faith, it didn't matter to me. So one of my finer moments came in that very same year. Each grade in high school did Bible class with their homeroom teacher, and I had been butting heads with our teacher for two years. To put it very lightly, we did not like each other. On top of that, Bible class at 8 o'clock in the morning wasn't very lively, and so put those two things together, and I decided that these classes were dead and sterile and lifeless and basically unbiblical. But rather than trying to call a meeting with the staff and faculty to discuss a better way forward, I wrote out a proposal. Literally, I called it that. I think the title was something like A Proposal for Biblical Teaching at Mount Zion Christian School. It's ridiculous. And I printed out 60 copies of this, and I showed up to school the next morning, and I started passing them out in the hallways to all the students. I say 60 copies because it was a pretty small school. But I was asking people to sign them and then turn them into the principal. It was part protest. It was part petition. It was part a healthy vision, but it was full-on asshole. And I'm sorry to use that word, but it's the only way to describe it. I'm shocked when I look back at just how arrogant it was. I've always had a good relationship with my principal from high school. Uh, He's actually one of my financial supporters for my ministry uh, to this day. And somewhere around a year ago, or maybe two years ago, I don't remember, but he found a copy of this proposal in his desk. I was actually shocked that he still had it. Uh, but he probably thought it was funny. And so he took a picture and sent it to me. And honestly, I wanted to gag. I mean, it was funny, but it was disgusting. This was a full-blown picture of what it looks like to act in righteousness and justice, or rather self-righteousness and aggressive and arrogant justice. It was not pretty. So let's just leave it at that and move ahead, because I don't like talking about it that much. But moving ahead, the third and highest category of low virtue is called benevolence. It's a nice-sounding word, and Lao Tzu doesn't critique it too hard. It shares some of the characteristics of high virtue, such as acting without an agenda. And so it beats justice because justice acts with an agenda, but it falls short of true te because it feels compelled to act. And so when we make up the hierarchy, benevolence is the highest form of low virtue. It only falls short of true te because it fails to internalize the virtue to the point of acting spontaneously, effortlessly, and totally selflessly, like learning a language in the story I talked about at the beginning. I've struggled to come up with a story for this that doesn't sound like I'm trying to make myself look holier than I really am. But there's one that came to mind about a time that I made a very positive and healthy choice, but one that I really had to will myself or even force myself into doing. So a little background on me, as if there wasn't enough already in this episode. But I've had a passion for youth ministry since I first came to faith at 16 in the story I just told. I knew that I wanted to work with teens even then, and as soon as I could start volunteering with the younger kids, I did. By the time I was 25, I had been on staff in our ministry for seven years, and I had been part of the same youth group actually since I was just before I turned 13, so I had literally spent half my life there. And I thought I would never leave. The only reason that I did was because I moved across the country to go to seminary. 
But when I would return in the, in the summer, I would still continue volunteering as a leader when we went to youth camp. A youth camp was one of the highlights of my year. My ministry style has always been very relational and personal. So for me, youth camp was a great time to invest in building these deeper connections that would actually last um, for the rest of the year and, and go on well beyond that. It was a time to focus not only on strengthening those existing relationships, but really paying special attention to building one or two new connections that would result in this long-term discipleship. And so I called it playing the long game. And all the fun and the games at camp opened up opportunities to build trust in order to continue to mentor and support these teens throughout the rest of the year. For this reason, I always put myself right in the center of the action. I was the youngest staff member for quite a few years, and so I got the privilege of being the fun and crazy one a lot of the time, although it was always, again, with this intention of building relationships. But on my first summer coming back, I felt a conviction that I needed to do things differently. And when it comes to being staff at youth camp, not everyone gets to be fun and crazy all the time. There is so much behind-the-scenes work that has to be done. In order for some leaders to be hanging out and playing games with the students all the time, others have to be helping to clean and prepare events and set up the sound systems and move the supplies back and forth and do all of the logistics side of things. And so I had always been lucky to be in the former, the fun category. And of course, I wanted to be there again, but a thought occurred to me. What's the point of me just coming to do all the fun stuff if I'm not able to commit to continue developing those relationships long term? Wouldn't it be better for me to do the behind-the-scenes work as much as I can in order to give the other staff the opportunity to build those connections? After all, they were the ones who were there for the long game. I, I, to be honest with you, I didn't like the thought, but it made a lot of sense. And so I knew the right thing to do. I just didn't want to do it. And so I met with the leaders and I told them what I was thinking. I wanted to change my approach this year. Since I was only visiting as a former staff member, I wanted to do everything possible to free them up to do the meaningful relationship building. I asked them to let me know about any behind-the-scenes things that needed to be done, and I told them I was happy to do whatever they needed me to do to give them that freedom. Now, it sounds really noble, but it was hard. It was really hard to force myself to think that way. Now, it was also incredibly rewarding, and it produced a lot of growth in me long-term, but my point is this. I had to force myself to do it. Or in Lao Tzu's words, I had to take action. So even though this was virtue, and even though by acting without agenda and for the good of others, it was like high virtue, according to Lao Tzu, the fact that it took so much effort and concentration and, and forcing means that it was actually only the highest form of low virtue. It was an important step for cultivating high virtue in myself, Although, as I said, I don't think we can ever fully achieve that high virtue 100%. But the more intentional steps that we take, like this one, the more we can shape our perspectives to make these virtuous choices feel almost effortless. Although Wu Wei and true Te represents spontaneous, unprovoked virtue from a place of genuine and simple authenticity, we don't get there overnight. We will probably require righteousness to get to benevolence, and benevolence to get to virtue or te. And for many people, especially those who grew up in religious environments, etiquette and religion might also be a necessary starting point, even though Lao Tzu doesn't really have anything good to say about them. But I want to stop and take a look at this from a Christian perspective. 
First of all, I don't think we need to paint low virtue with a negative light. Even ritual has its place in Christianity, and it is not bad if it's done with the right intentions. We have thousands of years of history and tradition to show us that. So much of what we do, whether modern or ancient, is ritual, no matter how much many Christians like to claim that they're not religious and legalistic. We have many rituals, and that's okay. Ritual and spiritual practices shape and form us. And there's also an important place for forcing ourselves to take action, both for justice and for benevolence. If we follow a crucified Savior, that entails picking up a cross and dying to ourselves. And these are not effortless choices in the beginning. They cost a lot. Even Jesus himself wept and sweated blood the night before his crucifixion, and he had to force himself to accept his own cross. It was painful and it was difficult because that human side of him was very real. And when we say that the goal is effortless virtue, this does not mean that low virtue is less virtuous. But it is only to provide us a hope or an ideal vision that with time, the more that we make the effort to move in the right direction, the more virtue like this becomes second nature to us. I don't have to use as much effort anymore to submit to my leadership and take the attitude of service that I did in that story of youth camp. And sometimes, many times, it is still difficult, but it is slowly becoming more of my default response, or at least more of my instinct than it ever was before. And so as we get ready to close out this episode, let me read another translation of those four steps down the ladder. This one is a bit more free in the way it words things, but I think it gives a really nice perspective. And the wording doesn't necessarily match up with the analysis that I've done here, um, but as I've said before, this is a tough chapter to translate, and my own commentary here is just one way, one example of many ways to interpret and apply it. But this translation from Oliver Benjamin says, The truly virtuous act without objective, and thus have no need to be recognized. Beneath them, the benevolent are moved by a code of valor, and so must strive after honor and accolade. Yet at least they do not impose morality upon others. Beneath them, the righteous perceive themselves as moral guardians, and so they must strive to control and command. Yet at least they are concerned with the living. Beneath them, the holy are only interested in tradition and ritual. Since no one really cares about any of that, they must strive to establish their doctrines by force. So that gives a bit of a different perspective, and maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. Now, if you're reading along, you'll notice that I've spent two weeks talking about this chapter, and I still haven't gotten to the last few lines of it. And it was my plan to cover them this week, but as I was preparing for this episode, I realized that there's too much to say about this middle chunk, and the end piece actually fits very nicely with chapter 39. Remember, there was no chapter divisions in the original, so I think it's fair to say that there's we can blur the lines a little bit, and we'll take chapter 38 next week and pair it with 39. I hope, though, that my very personal and contextualized stories today were helpful and thought-provoking for you. I hope that you're able to do some serious introspection and evaluate your own attitudes and your own behaviors right now. 
And so I would question you, even though this episode was very personal for me, I would ask you the question, are there any areas of your life where you see high virtue coming through? And if so, then that's great. That is a sign of te. Or if we go with the Christian comparison that I've been using, it may just be a sign of the Holy Spirit transforming your inner disposition to a more Christ-like one. On the other hand, where are the areas of low virtue in your life? Can you look back and see growth like I can? Remember, look at the long trajectory of your life. That's what I had to do. And don't get too down on yourself for individual moments or even entire seasons where you feel like you fell backwards. But can you identify any areas that are growing? Or can you identify areas that need growth where you can take some intentional steps to cultivate them so that they become more and more effortless? Building a habit takes intentionality and effort and time and blood, sweat, and tears, just like language learning, as I said before. And although virtue is not the same as a habit, there are some similarities here. We cannot force ourselves into high virtue, but we can till the soil of our hearts and our lives to make them places where virtue is more likely to grow. The Tao Te Ching has helped me do exactly that, and it's still the main reason why I read it, and it's why I share what I'm learning here in this podcast. I hope that you're benefiting from it, and I'd love it if you reach out to me and let me know what you're learning and what you're drawing from this, either from the show directly or on your own study. And so if you'd like to reach out to me, you can go ahead and to my blog at coreyfar.com, C-O-R-E-Y-F-A-R-R.com, and click on the contact button and let me know what you're learning. But for now, to close out the episode, I'm just going to leave you with a cliffhanger for next week, by reading the final stanza of chapter 38 for a second time. Etiquette and ritual are a thin shell of loyalty and sincerity. They are the beginning of chaos. Knowledge and predictions are only flowery embellishments. They are the beginning of ignorance. And so the wise person lives in the thickness of reality, not the thin shell of etiquette and ritual or the flowers of knowledge and predictions. The wise person says yes to the former and no to the latter.